Listen, I'm excited y'all are here. I, I'm having fun with this. Uh, this is just a fun, fun study for me. And we're, we're going to, we, we really kept a pretty good clip, uh, a normal clip. We did two chapters in two weeks, but now we're going to do two chapters over the course of the next four weeks because we're going to get into some stuff, some different stuff, and try to bring it in to give us some insight to some different things. And, you know, one of the main things is, is just that we believe that um, God's Word is authoritative, that it comes from Him. Uh, in our office, we have people that fill out paperwork, and one of the things that we ask them is, what do you believe about the Bible? And we give them four options, and one of them is it's just a book. One of them is it's a book that was written by men, and I'm free to apply it or disregard it as I see fit. And then the third one is um, I believe it's a book that was written by men directed by God and it contains principles and commands that I should follow no matter how I feel. And the fourth one is just kind of a default, I don't know. <laughs> and so uh, it's a, you know, just a good assessment on the front end when people are coming in, what do you think about the Bible? Well, one of the things that we believe about the Bible is that it's a integrated whole. It's, it's a comprehensive message written by over 40 men, uh, over 6,000 years, and the beautiful thing about it is, is that it contains one central theme, one message all throughout, and that is the heart of a, a God redeeming people to himself through a Messiah. And so we're part of a great heritage of, of Jewish tradition that, uh, quite frankly, I didn't learn a whole lot about it in seminary. I, I had to kind of on my own find some books and and I learned some things, but that was 30 years ago, so I don't remember a whole lot. <laughs> um, I'm looking at Champ, and he's like, because we're both alumni. But anyway, um, he didn't want me to speak disparagingly about our school, um, which I'm not. I'm just saying I was, I was trying to get through and probably missed reading some things. and So I've tried to catch up. Two more minutes. Um, but in, in God giving us his word... Um, this is something that uh, has kind of been fun for me to learn. I learned it from a guy by the name of Chuck Missler, who was a communications officer with the Navy and a specialist in that. And he talks about how, um, how we won World War II was by decoding the messages that were being sent uh, among the enemy. And because we were able to do that early, we were able to stop some things and intercept some things and, and, and then turn the tide in Europe. And, um, and one of the things that's true about codes is that um, they're sent by uh, radio frequency a lot of times so that they can get from one place to another quickly. And then they're decoded in different bandwidths. And so you have to have the code on the front end so that when the message is sent, you get the right, the right message. And um, in fact, the, you know, the, I think it's the Six-Day War in 1967 that the that the Jews won, um, the reason that they won was because there was a delay in the transmission of, of coded information from those, the Egyptians to the, to the um, Jordanese, and because of that, they didn't act cooperatively, and we believe that that was God blocking their message. And on the other hand, God has a message that Satan wants to block. And one of the ways that you can prevent a message, a transmission from being jammed is by spreading it all over the bandwidth. And that's exactly what God did in his beautiful uh, word to us because there's not a chapter on one particular thought on baptism. It's, the information is spread out in a bunch of different places. So if somebody were to rip out a page of your Bible, the information uh, would still be contained in the rest of the Bible. And so we find that true across the whole, the whole uh, communication of God to us through His Holy Word. And it's beautiful because there's layers to it too. I, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but some of these people who are geniuses, will, um, they will play these chess games virtually that have multi-layers. And, you know, kind of the more in tune they are with chess... And they, one person might be playing four or five different players on different levels, and somehow these games all fit together. And in a way, that's how God's Word works, is that He's telling us many things through many different uh, 
venues uh, historically, but then also through figures of speech and different types. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those tonight. We're going to talk about some other things that uh, some of you may have heard of and some of you may not have heard of. And so I'm going to introduce those over the course of the next couple weeks. I've talked about cookies, cookies in video games. And I think there's a few people in here who play video games, so you know what I'm talking about. But it's just basically little things that you pick up by going over and running over this or touching this and, and you get a point. Um, so we're going to try to find some cookies that God has left for us in the book of Ruth. And part of the reason I think it's so beautiful is it's a short book that contains a, a love story that if that's all you get, you know, love story between a, 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 a widow daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law and then how they worked together. Um, Ruth found Boaz's field and Naomi told her how to, to cash in on that providence of God. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But we're really only going to cover 12 verses tonight. So I have to spread out the, the last two chapters over the next uh, three weeks after tonight. So we're going to cover 12 chapters, and um, I mean 12 verses. Uh, and then we'll, we'll pick up next week in verse 13. So your homework assignment is to kind of reread the whole book, because <laughs> it doesn't take long, but then uh, space, pay special attention to chapters 3 and 4, and, uh, and then we'll, that's what we're going to be covering the next couple weeks. Okay, I had this open. What happened to it? I'm going to try to open it again here. Well, listen, while we're getting this ready, let me pray for us, and I'll try to, I'm terrible at doing this, but I'll try to do two things at once. Heavenly Fathers, we have gathered here tonight. We want to ask that you'd come and meet with us. And Lord, we're going to talk about tonight one aspect of the content in anointing. And I pray today that um, my brothers and my sisters will walk out of here having sensed the anointing of God, not on me, but on us. Holy Spirit, you're the one who brings the word to life to us. You're the author of this book. And so will you please uh, speak through me, speak through your word, teach us, help us to understand, and just create a greater awe and wonder in each of us of the incredible message of love that you have spent all of time to communicate to us. And Lord, I pray as a result of that, we would love you more. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for all who've turned out. Just please lead us by your spirit, by your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are, um, again, we are in the book of Ruth, and we're in session three. And I would say chapter three, and we are going to start in chapter three, but we're not going to be able to cover all of it, and so I'm going to um, do a little bit of review, just in case somebody came in. I hope you'll invite your friends, because I think there's still a lot of good stuff, and I'll do a little mini review each time so that we can catch people up if they haven't. So we, we um, uh, Ruth, uh, I've just entitled this, A Bitter Journey with Glorious Results, and glorious results at many, many levels. Um, in terms of the outline, we have... Um, a, a, uh, an introduction to the characters in chapter 1, and we went through all their names, and then we uh, had uh, a major move from uh, a, uh, a man who was uh, from the house of bread from Bethlehem, and he moved to an area that was really kind of off limits to Moab, but we believe that he was in the process of trying to save his family from starvation because there was a famine that likely was a, a byproduct of sin, that the people had rebelled against God, and this was a pattern that's, that's repeated over and over in the book of Judges, and we put the book of Ruth about in Judges chapter 6 time frame when Gideon was the judge, and you can read about him in uh, Judges 6 through 8, and the reason is because there was actually a famine at that time, and so most of the commentators that I read kind of place it in that time frame. Um, during 
uh, th this transition over there, um, uh, the, the patriarch dies. Elimelech is his name. Uh, his name means God is king or my God is king. And it's kind of an ironic name because he left Bethlehem and at that time there was no king in Israel. Uh, they were the, in fact, uh, if you just do a quick read of the book of Judges, you'll kind of pick this up that there were cycles. There's uh, six cycles that they go through where the people are, are doing good and then they get into sin and then God brings judgment, sometimes through famine and, and pestilence, and sometimes through sickness, and sometimes through uh, enemies that come in and, and drive them out and, and you know, uh, kill people and steal their, you know, their crops. And then they cry out to God in repentance, and then God sends a judge, someone to speak into their life and kind of redirect them. And really it's a parallel of what we find in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses uh, 16 and 17, where, which says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this is exactly what God did in the book of Judges seven times, or six times rather. And, you know, uh, for teaching, that's telling us, helping us know what's right. For correction, that's telling us what's wrong. For, for um, uh, teaching, correction, uh, for teaching, for training, for correction, and training in righteousness. I'm, I've gotten all confused. But uh, telling us what's right, telling us what's wrong, telling us how to get it right, and then finally the training in righteousness, how to keep it right. And so we find that in the book of Judges, they, they come to a period where it's, they're at peace and they get a, a, a restitution, or not restitution, but a respite from all the, the things that were judgment of, of God in their life for a period of time and then they just slide right back into it and circle back around. Um, the, uh, we talked about the names. Uh, we talked about Moabites and I'm going to you know, highlight that just a little bit more tonight. Um, tonight we're going to talk about this concept of the kinsman redeemer. And some of you have heard that before. Uh, the, actually the Hebrew word is the word goel and it's just spelled that way, G-O-E-L, goel. And that's our translation is kinsman redeemer, and the reason is because kinsman redeemer kind of describes what that, that person is, what that role is that he takes. We're going to look at something that uh, some of the commentators, just through the eyes and the lens of our culture and, and through the 21st century, sees as, um, as a scandal because they project all the things that we see in the news and, and on the internet into this, this uh, picture of what takes place, this narrative, and, um, and they're completely wrong. And then we're going to look at this concept called the Leverite marriage, and I encouraged people last week to kind of see if you could look that up, see what that is. Did anybody take the time to look up what a Leverite marriage is? Anyone? Okay, we have a few, so I may call on you. But I won't, I won't call on you. I'll just say, would someone like to comment? All right. So um, I, I kind of want to start on this idea of the Moabites. And last week I mentioned some different references. And I want to start, um, if you're taking notes, you can write down Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And if you remember, Nehemiah was the one who kind of led the charge to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem after it had been decimated for many, many years, uh, got uh, commissioned to do that. And chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the last chapter, it says, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And that sounds pretty harsh. But then it, there's an explanation why. It says, Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Um, later in the same chapter, verses 23 through 27, it says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married Ammonite, Ashdod, and Ammon, and Moab. So the Jews that had remained in Jerusalem while many were exiled, they just were mixing it up. And so they married these women from this, these other cultures. And as for their children, half of them spoke in the language of Ashdod. None of them was able to speak in the language of Judah. 
but the language of his own people. And so that they had not adopted the Jewish way of life and they had not adopted the worship of the true God. They just brought in their, their, their culture and the Jews adapted to that. And so this goes on and talks about how uh, Nehemiah says, I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons or yourself. Now, again, that sounds pretty harsh, but he cites a, a point that we're familiar with. You know that uh, Israel, the divided kingdom, before it was divided and the divided kingdom had 39 kings total. And if we categorize them in good and bad, we only have eight over here in the good column, and each one of those had a, a flaw in, in their reign. And so Nehemiah cites Solomon. He said, Did not Solomon the king of Israel sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. He, he was loved by God, and he made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women caused him even to sin. And what they did was through their seduction, through their relationship with him, he just drifted spiritually and he began to set up temples for these different foreign gods and worship them with the women that he had brought into his harem. So um, Nehemiah is reminding them, do we then hear about, that, uh, about you that you've committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against your God and marrying foreign women? Ezra takes it a step farther. Ezra was serving as the priest when they rebuilt the wall and, and he and... Um, Zerubbabel, a name that's kind of fun to say, just Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel helped rebuild the temple, and Ezra was the, found, the priest who found the law of Moses, the law of God, and brought it out and read it. And in Ezra chapter 10, same topic, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shenachiah, the son of Jehel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been faithful to our God and have married foreign women from these peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So they, they had heard the law which they had ignored up to this point and realized that they had made the same mistake that Solomon did and now they're ready to abandon these, these, these women and the children because they were leading them away in worship of foreign gods. And so this is one of the reasons why God stands so sharply on this. And, and this is a difficult thing, but I, I think I said the first week, Part of the way that we understand the Bible is our God is a timeless God. We're, we're caught in a time, in a time uh, uh, continuum, and He's outside of that. So when He prophesies about something, he's, He already knows how it's going to turn out. And not because he has, he has made it that way, and we're just all puppets in this game that He's letting play out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played the game Mousetrap, um, but it's an old game and kind of fun. You put the pieces together at the end, the mouse gets caught. And I don't even really know if I know how to play it. I knew how to put the pieces together and then we would trip it off and let it you know, do all its things and, and catch. But um, God is not like that at all. He desires a relationship with each one of us. There's not one of us here who can pass the buck and say, the devil made me do it or I didn't have a choice. We all make choices. It's just that God is outside of time and he sees how it plays out. So he can prophesy ahead of time what's gonna happen and then he can give us clues like he did the Jews. And I said this last week that prophecy for the Jew is not a prediction or a promise and then a fulfillment. It's a pattern that's repeated over and over. So the calendar you have in your lap is a tool that helps you see a pattern. And we live in these patterns all the time. Today we got up. We went through a routine. We've gone through our day. Now it's early in the evening. And hallelujah, God's mercies are new every morning. That's one of the reasons I encourage people to get up and spend some time with the Lord in the morning because you might miss out if they're new every morning. You wait till the afternoon to get them. <laughs> All right. So 
this caution, this warning against Moabites, marrying Moabites, intermixing with them, was because of the way that they behaved toward the Israelites when they came into the promised land, and then also this thing that they did to try to hire a prophet of God to curse the, the armies of God. And so, um, so God sets this law up, and what I want to say is that our God sets up laws not because He thinks we're going to be able to keep them necessarily, but He sets up laws according to Paul in the book of Galatians so that he, we would have a tutor to teach us why we need a Savior. And so God sets up laws, uh, he's, and our God is a promise keeper, but He sometimes bends His laws to accomplish His purposes in the same way that He brought Ruth into this family. And we're going to see how that all plays out. Um, so, next thing, the harvest. Now, we, we talked about this last week, and um, we talked about the barley season, how that was the first, uh, first harvest they would have in, in the spring, our spring, their, the beginning of their new year. And then they celebrated those three uh, feasts. And um, uh, at the end of chapter one, we're identified that. And I think I, I, I told you that anytime you have a detail in God's word, and it might be a, a time frame in the morning, in the evening, the next day, that week, all of that is real important. And it shows the precision of the, the revelation that we have from God, that he's telling us very specific things. And that can have to do with, you know, the fact that, uh, that um, Elimelech was from, a, from uh, Ephrathath, Judah, uh, Bethlehem, which is different than Bethlehem that was in Damascus. You know, we have Moscow, Tennessee, and Moscow, Arkansas, and Moscow, Russia. And so if you're from Moscow and you have a southern draw, you might be from Arkansas or Tennessee. You're probably not from Russia, but you might make the distinction. And then often we, we will do this. If you're out of, out of the state, people say, where are you from? You say, Tennessee. Or you, if you're real proud of Elvis, you might say Memphis. But when you're in Memphis and somebody asks you, where are you from? You say, I'm from Cordova. And people know where that is. Or you might say, well, I'm from, I'm from Bartlett and I live right by the police station. So we get more specific when it's, when it's important for people to know. You're trying to give them directions to your house. In general, people, I talked with a gentleman tonight. I said, uh, he said, uh, he lives in Fayette County. I said, oh, we just moved to Fayette County. And as we were talking, I said, he said, well, where, are you, where in Fayette County? So you want me to be more specific? I said, in Hickory With. He said, so do I. And I said, well, hello, neighbor. <laughs> so um, so we, God gives us these, these precision pinpoints to help us to know that it's, he's not a general God. He's very specific. And, and we have uh, the people in this, uh, this drama uh, at, the, at the end of the, of the barley season. And um, this is the beginning of the spring. And it was the time when they celebrated first fruits because they would harvest and they would give a, a, a major portion to God and celebrate because God had been faithful in giving us uh, the grain. Now I want to talk about gleaning again. Uh, gleaning was uh, the, the means that God provided for the poor, for widows, for orphans to, to be able to sustain themselves. Um, if they had no land, they had no means to do that. If they had no if they didn't hire themselves as a, as a harvester or, or um, somebody who would uh, work with a farmer, then they had no means to do that. They had to hustle. Uh, uh, I, may, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but um, the Jews had no um, prisons and they had no police force. Did you all know that? Okay. So how did they deal with crime? Well, they categorized, uh, categorized it in two categories. One was sin. And God made provision for that in, in sacrifices and restitution. And then the other one was capital punishment, <laughs> stoning. <laughs> and so, you know, if somebody committed murder or they committed adultery, then the community would participate and take them out and stone them to death. And, you know, we've had, I've had people tell me since I was a kid that, well, capital punishment is not a deterrent for crime. And so that's why we got rid of it. Well, actually it is because those people will never commit a crime again. 
and actually it's a, um, it's a great testimony for people to kind of think, hey, you know what, maybe I won't do that. And I think that's part of the problem that we have right now is that we have, we have criminals who are coaching children. You're just going to get a slap on the wrist. I'll teach you how to do this. Hop in the car. We'll hop out, pop some windows out, get in the cars, find money, weapons, wallets, purses, and we'll be gone in three minutes. If you get caught, they're just going to let you out in 30 minutes. There's no, no consequence. Um, it, we, we set ourselves up for this because about 10 years ago there was a survey that was done that said if you could rob a bank and, and steal a million dollars and get away with it, would you do it? You'd never get caught and, and you'd get away with it. And 67% of the responders said yes. So, so that same survey, um, or a similar survey rather, uh, I heard it, people asked, you know, uh, why, why was Hitler wrong in what he did? And the answer was because he lost. Not because what he did was morally wrong, it's because he lost the war and that's the way the history was written. So we've got a lot of people who think differently about us, but gleaning was done by those who had no means to provide for themselves and it was the way the community allowed them to participate in doing that. I mentioned last week, we send checks to people's homes. They don't come on time, people get on the phone and they're irate. Where's my check? In those days, people had to participate. And if they were crippled in some way, then there would be somebody who could go through for them. But the harvesters, by the law, were only allowed to pass through the field one time. Anything that was left on the, on the, uh, on the harvest, uh, on, if it was grapes on the vine, if it was you know, left in the field, they would grab handfuls, cut them, put them in a satchel, move on. If they left some, uh, the poor could take those. And so this was a beautiful thing because Naomi coming back, bringing Ruth with her, knew that she was poor. She had no means to provide for herself. She was not under the cover and safety and, and rest of her husband. And she was going to have to provide. And she's older now. And so she brings a, a, a woman, her daughter-in-law, who's devoted to her and has an able back and willing to work. I've given you this calendar. And just real quickly, we... Um, we touched on that, how um, in the month of Nisan, Nisan are actually three uh, feasts that are all kind of combined together, sometimes colloquially called Passover, but it includes Passover, the Passover uh, dinner, and then uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of First Fruits, which is not on this, but it's, it's the, if you remember, this was the tongue twister, it's the, it's the first day after Passover, after Shavuot, after Passover. So you have a Shabbat, or you have Passover, Shabbat, and then the next day, which is always a Sunday, because Shabbat's always on Saturday from, from sundown, to sun, or sundown to sundown. And But Passover could land on any day because it was on the 14th of Nisan. So just like your birthday lands on different days each year because it's attached to a date, Passover was attached to the 14th of Nisan. And then I mentioned last week that, that they would bring the, the sacrificial lambs in on the 10th of Nisan to be examined, and then they would come and stay in the home for four days to protect them from getting injured in some way, that they would be disqualified from being sacrificed. And it's the same day that Jesus presented himself in the temple to be examined by the priest, and they rejected him. Um, prophecy is pattern. All right, and then we have uh, the Feast of Weeks in the middle of, of uh, uh, Savan, and it, it's 50 days after the first fruits, and we identify that as Christians as the day that the church was born. Uh, it's the day that they were hiding up in the room praying, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they came out and preached. And then in the fall, we have Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Feast of, uh, well, the Day of Atonement, which uh, was when the, the, the annual sacrifice was offered. And then we have the Feast of, of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was a week-long feast. And you can read about that in John chapter 7, because that's when Jesus uh, 
major, makes a major faux pas. They would all go out and camp in these in these uh, tabernacles, these little camping shelters, and they would they would uh, eat and play games. And then on the last day, the last and greatest day of the feast, John chapter seven, verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine, the high priest would come out, and he would bring his assistant with him, and he would talk about how God provided water in in the wilderness for the Israelites in the desert, water out of a rock. And then he would call for his assistant to bring a pitcher of water. And then just as a, a demonstration of thanks, he would pour the water out. Well, right when he was getting ready to do that, Jesus stood up. Everybody's sitting down. He stands up and he says, who's ever thirsty, let him come into me and drink. And from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then thankfully, John helps us a little bit because he gives a little commentary. He says, of this he spoke of the Spirit, but the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Well, now He has. And all of us who are children of God have the Holy Spirit living within us as an earnest of our salvation. And He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So we have these feasts. This is important for us to identify because... And now I want to make a correction. Last week I made a statement. And we have a, a, a sister here tonight who has traversed through with the Jewish community, uh, the Messianic Jewish community, and she said, well, Jamie, that may have been true historically, but currently they still do eat leavened bread in the fall feast. The only one that they don't eat leavened bread is at Passover. Did I get that right, Martha? Okay. And so I do believe historically that's the way it was, um, and I still think it, it's provocative a little bit more than coincidental that they they were described not to eat unleavened bread, but to eat leavened bread at the Feast of Weeks, uh, which is also coincidentally, and which didn't we say last week or the week before, that coincidence is not a kosher word. Coincidence is a hint that God is, is working behind the scenes. And uh, that's the same time in the Jewish liturgy where they happen to read the book of Ruth about a Gentile bride being redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. All right, so next I want to talk about the Leverite marriage, and then we're going to read. Leverite marriage is first described in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And I'm going to just admit to you, this is bizarre. We would think this is crazy. Now, I do think that doesn't mean that Gentiles haven't practiced this in some form or another, but basically what it boiled down to is if a man died, then his, his lineage would die. If he died with no children, his lineage would die, and his wife could actually go make a claim on his brother to say, you need to take me as a wife, and you need to bear children with me, and particularly a son, so that your, your brother's uh, heritage will not be lost because the tribes, uh, the land was distributed by tribe. Judy was, was given a particular area and it was always to stay in the tribe. If you've watched the, the book, uh, I mean, watched uh, The Chosen, this is kind of plays out because there's a time where um, uh, Judas is working with his, his uh, I guess, his real estate trainer and they're buying a piece of land and the man says, well, this has been in my family all my, uh, for many generations, and they kind of talk to him and, and get him to sell it. So apparently he's, his family's starving, and he's trying to make a way. And, and different than the show, they sell the land to, uh, to this man and to Judas. Uh, but actually, a purchase of land was only kind of more like a lease. You know, when we bought um, uh, some timeshare, I remember we bought a, a, uh, a title to one week out of 52 weeks for this piece of property. So we own 152, 152nd uh, of this piece of property. And then I remember Disney saying that they, theirs was, they didn't sell property, they sold a 50-year lease. And I thought, man, that's a rip-off. But I think it ends up being about the same because we're probably not going to live that long to, to enjoy it either way. But, um, but the, the Jewish people, would, they didn't sell their land just outright. What they would do is they would sell it for a time period, so it was kind of like a lease, and then in the year Jubilee, it's kind of like all the all the pieces go back in the box, and we start all over. It came back to the family, and so usually somebody might 
buy the property or lease the property for a smaller amount if the year of Jubilee was a little bit closer. You know, if they had 25 years, they might be able to get this much money for it. And then sometimes people would be, be poor and they would do that knowing that it's going to come back to me in 17 years at the year of Jubilee. It's supposed to. They didn't always follow that. But, but um, they would sell their land if they were poor to pay off debt or do something like that. And then also they would sometimes sell themselves as a slave to serve, to pay off debt. So Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, it says, When a man died with no son, his wife could make a claim on a brother in the family to take her as a wife and bear a son to inherit the family plot of land and perpetuate that family inheritance. Now, there had to be three conditions to make this work. And as... We go down, you're going to, I'm going to have to explain what that is because it's really ugly and you can't really tell what it is, or maybe you can. But first of all, this, this, this person that she was going to go to and say, I want you to take me as a wife and bear a son for your, for your brother's name. First, he had to be a near kinsman. He had to be in the family. Um, somebody of the same tribe or the same family because the, the land never went outside of that. They were never allowed to sell uh, land it was in their tribe, the tribe of Judah specifically here, to, to another tribe or to foreigners or anybody. It was always to stay in the land because, again, it was God's land. It was just on, uh, on loan to them. Number two, he had to be able to perform it. He had to have the means to do it. And, you know, sometimes there were some stipulations like the book of Ruth that we're, that we're going to see uh, somebody who is willing, it seems, at first, but then he indicates that he's really not able to do that. Uh, number three, he had to be willing. And the reason is because this was not, not required at all. And then if he chose not to do this, he had to surrender his, his sandal, his shoe, which the whole thing is bizarre to me. The whole thing is kind of odd. But in Deuteronomy 25, it says, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So the term Leverite marriage means uh, the, brother's, uh, the brother steps in to, to be a husband. So that's a long definition, but that's really what it means is that it's, it's the the brother of the deceased man taking the wife. So that's what a, the Leverite marriage was about. Verse 6 says, It shall be, uh, this is still in chapter 25, It shall be the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his wife's brother shall go up to the gate of the elders and say. Now, just a quick comment about the gate. The gate was kind of like... Um, City Hall. This is where all the kind of the leaders of the community would go out and they would check visas coming in and you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever traveled out of the United States, uh, especially in Canada, how long are you going to be here? What are you here for? They ask you a bunch of questions. They look at your passport before they let you into the country. And I saw a car in front of us turn around and, and, and have to go out one time. But, um, but these people would stand out there. Business would be taken care of. We talk about how uh, they would kind of serve as the justice of the peace in the community. So if there was some kind of civil issue, they would bring it to the, the elders who were at the gate, and they would, they would do, do this. But here it says, The elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her. So the wife tattles on him to the city officials. He's not willing to do this. And so they would summon him out there. I guess subpoena him out there, and then ask him, are you not willing to do this, to take this? And if he says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife, the, the widow, would come to him in the sight of all the elders and pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and then she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And she'd walk away with his sandal, and he'd walk away with one sandal. And, but then this is the funniest part to me. It says, in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal was removed. <laughs> <laughs> so 
He had to meet three conditions. He had to be a near kinsman. He had to be able to perform, and he had to have the means to because he had to purchase this land back and all of the conditions that went along with it, and he had to be willing to do so. And then finally, if he chose not to do that, then um, he had to surrender his shoe. And so, um, and this is, I don't know if you remember, there was a time where George Bush was in some Middle East country. Somebody took their shoes off and threw them at him. And so there's, there's a connection to that. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying he didn't deserve it or he did deserve it, but that was just an expression in that culture to kind of shame him. And he, he ducked it and dodged it. And uh, I think the guy threw both of his shoes and he went out barefoot. But anyway, um, so the Leverite marriage is a kind of this odd concept that we have with us. And part of it is, is we are in a culture where we kind of, we fall in love and we just, uh, we meet people and we pick our spouse and, and then we find out that we lied to each other on our wedding day. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, only, only slightly kidding. Um, but, but they, uh, how many of you seen the movies Fiddler on the Roof? Okay. All right. There's a scene where there's this clash of cultures. This girl loves this guy, and, but the matchmakers found her a husband. And that was just the way it was. Um, years ago, we had a gentleman who worked on our computers here. His name was Lachman, and he was from India. And he said that his, his, his fiance was coming to the United States. And we're like, that is great. Well, what's she like? He said, I don't know. I've not met her yet. And it was just like, what? And he said, oh, yes, my parents arranged this with, well, I've seen Lachman at Costco with his three children and his wife, and he's happily married. And part of it is, is he embraced that approach. He trusted his parents. He trusted her parents. And even though they didn't know each other, that didn't happen in the Jewish culture. Usually they had known each other as children. Uh, but, but that was kind of the way it was. So the Leverite marriage. Um, now, I want you to write this down, and we're going to come back to this probably in week six of our study because there's some things that I want to show you in this chapter that doesn't have anything to do really to do with Ruth, but I'm tying it in right here. Genesis chapter 38 is a, a, a picture of this playing out, the Leverite marriage. Um, it's a very sordid tale, and it's, uh, it's horrible and beautiful at the same time, which is kind of like all of us. Um, in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is introduced. And Joseph is esteemed by his father, and that's when he gets his cloak. But he's hated by his brothers because his father has shown favor to him. And then they sell him, and he's off in an uh, 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 Ishmaelite caravan to, to um, Egypt. And, and then we have Joseph not even mentioned in chapter 38 at all. But this is just plopped right in the middle of it. And then we pick back up with Joseph again at Potiphar's house in 39. Genesis 38, it's 30 verses long. I'm going to go through it quickly. It came about that at that time that Judah, the man, not the, the country at this point, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. Now, this is the only time in the Bible where an Adullamite is mentioned. So we have very little to know about them but he was a foreigner. Judah saw that uh, there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. And that's a nice way to say that, that, uh, that um, they were sexually active. Verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son named Onan. Now, this was not you know, consecutive days. This is over the course of 18 months. And verse 5, she still bore another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chesbid that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, again an arranged marriage, and her name was Tamar. And that's a name that you ought to stick back uh, in your notes and, and, uh, and look at. Uh, you're going to find that name a couple different places. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up an offspring for your brother. Now, this was kind of problematic, and the reason is because the Jewish way of handing down inheritance was the firstborn always got a double portion. 
And Onan knew if I give her a son, then he goes ahead of me in the inheritance. He's going to get a double portion. He's going to get my brother, my dead brother's portion. So he was, he was not in, he wasn't interested in that at all. And so, uh, verse nine, Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So he went into his brother's wife, and he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now, I would never say this in front of a, a congregation in the pulpit, but this is a little Bible study. This is uh, one of the references that people refer to as masturbation. It is not masturbation. This is called coitus interruptus. And verse 10 says, But he did what was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. So this was very meaningful to the Lord, that they would follow this pattern and that he would just step up and take his wife. Now, part of the reason that seems foreign to us is because we fall in love. But they, the, the families determined who you would marry. And it was not a problem because you fell in love with the person you were married to once you were married. And, but he was not willing to do this. So finally, now here's Judah. He's got two dead sons. So he could really re relate to Naomi in that sense. But he had another son, a younger son. And Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, verse 11, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So he's basically saying, go back to your parents. I'm going to give my son some time to grow up. He's still a kid. He's not ready for you. And so Tamar went and lived in her father's house. But in the middle of it says, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. She's a bad omen. I don't want... She needs to go back to her parents. Now, after a considerable amount of time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning in, ended, Judah went up to his shear sheepers at Timnah, and he and his friends Hira the Adullamite. So he's back in the town where he first uh, met uh, Shua's daughter, and Judah's a widower, and he's in the same town that Tamar is in. Verse 13, it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enim, which is at the road of Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. So she had been stilted. You promised to give him as a husband to raise up for, uh, for his, my first husband, and you haven't done that. When, she saw, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. And so they were in Timnah, so he just practiced, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And so he turned aside to her on the road and said to her, Here now, let me come into you. Uh, nice small talk there. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, well, therefore, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, well, your seal, your cord, and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, put on her widow's garments. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend to the Adullamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand... He did not find her. He asked the men of, the, of her place at the city gate, where's the temple prostitute who was at the road of Enium? And they said to him, well, there's no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's not been, there's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you didn't find her. And after about three months later, Judah was informed your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And then, like a good Baptist, Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. <laughs> you know, he, he heard this, and wrath just filled his heart. Verse 25, it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. And I can almost hear the organ in the background. Da -da. <laughs> and she said, please examine these. Whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? 
Judah recognized them, and thankfully, we see something uh, beautiful, a broken heart and repentance. He said, she's more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son. You know, it's interesting, he takes responsibility for this. He recognizes, you know, I didn't fall through with a promise that I made, and because of that, I set this up myself. And then it says, um, and he did not have relations with her again. Came about the time when she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her tomb, in her womb. Uh, moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One hand was put out, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out, and then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. So the name Perez means, what a breach. Man, you messed it all up. And afterwards, his brother came out, who had a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up right now is because this is an example of the Leverite marriage going all wrong. God's design was this to perpetuate the land through an inheritance in the, within the tribe. And Judah just kind of messed it up. And, uh, and yet, here we see people who violated the law of God that the grace of God overshadows that because these names, Judah, Tamar, and Perez, pop up again later and even in our study of the book of Ruth. So we're going we're gonna to see that and then we're going to come back to this on, on week six. So here we go, chapter three. We've got ten minutes. <laughs> chapter three, verse one. When we left off um, Ruth and Naomi... Uh, Naomi had been in the field um, all day and had brought um, a, a big harvest back. And, and, and Naomi said, well, where did you go? I mean, this is good. Did you go out with the maids and, and so that others will not fall upon, fall upon you? And, um, and she says that she was in the field of Boaz. And I can almost see Naomi as the gears begin to turn. As a mother-in-law, she knows the laws of the land. She knows how this all works. Ruth is clueless. Ruth is just trying to be faithful to take care of her mother. She's got a stronger back. She's younger. They're trying to just make their way and survive. But Naomi sees something different than that. And, and last week we talked about how, in verse 20, of chapter 2, Naomi said to his daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And so she turns from, Don't call me Naomi any longer. Call me Mara, for God has dealt bitterly with me. And she was blaming God. She was angry at God. And now all of a sudden she sees a, a light on the horizon. The sun is coming up and God is getting ready to bless so in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now some versions talk about rest, use the word rest, and I think that that's a good translation. But actually what this is talking about, again, for a, for a woman in that culture to not be married was, was very difficult. She had to stay underneath her, husband, her father's uh, care, and if he was older and passed away then she would have to find some means, and usually it was coming behind the maidservants or hiring herself out as a harvester in the field. And, and so Naomi, having heard this report from Ruth, says, I want to make sure that you're taken care of. You've been taking care of me. You've devoted yourself to me. I want to make sure you're taken care of. So I'm going to tell you how this works. And like a good mother-in-law, uh, she says, Now Boaz... Now is not Boaz our kinsman? And this is where we get this concept of the kinsman redeemer. And so I'm going to step it up. Uh, we already talked about a near kinsman. So in this, um, this idea of what Naomi is teaching her um, is very important. She's educating her on how this all works. And she gives her some instruction. And so we're going to, to look at this step by step. Because I, I believe that this is a good practice for us as well. So the first thing that she says is, uh, wash yourself, therefore. 
And, you know, this is similar language that is used about Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, the first thing that we need to do is wash ourselves. We need to be clean. Um, uh, if you and I are going to go into the presence of Christ, we want to make sure that our hearts are clean before Him. David talks about this in Psalm 51, purify my heart that I might be clean. And so in this case, it's a, it's a physical cleaning. She's been in the fields. She's probably ripe like all of us would be if we had been in the fields. Uh, she may be dirty. Uh, she probably has some chaff in her hair. And her mother-in-law is saying, okay, we've got to pretty things up a little bit. Um, I, I'm sure, ladies, when you were going out on that first date, you didn't smear mud all over your face and, and uh, roll around on the ground with a dog before you went on that date. You, you, well, I just heard this many years ago, the, the bar needs paint and paint it. And... Uh, and so, and guys, you're, we're no different. You combed your hair. Hopefully you brushed your teeth. Um, you checked your breath. So Naomi is instructed by her mother-in-law to wash herself. And as believers, we want to do that as well. Um, and then she says, anoint yourself. And so this is something that um, uh, John tells us in 1 John 2.20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know that is the Spirit of God is the only one who can teach us all truth. And that all we need is the teaching of the Spirit. And that's why whenever we approach God's Word, we want to ask for anointing, for insight from the Holy Spirit, because He's the one who wrote this. He's the one who can teach us what it really means and what, it, what we need to draw from it uh, at that time. So it's always the Spirit of God who teaches us. And that's what I pray as I'm pre preparing, and that's what I pray as I stand up here is not that that Jamie would come and teach. And, and you would walk away saying, oh, isn't Jamie a great teacher? But you'd say, Lord, you met with us. You, you, I learned this about you and my relationship with you. So the Holy Spirit is able to teach us, able to guide us into all truth. That's why Jesus said he gave, it, gave us the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 2 says, God has revealed to them through the Spirit, and the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And so... Uh, and, and this is not to say that we should just disregard school and education and training and seminary um, because all of us have been beneficiaries of that. It's been passed on to us by godly men. You hear me quote Brother Steve and Adrian Rogers and, and another one of my heroes just passed away this last week, Charles Stanley. Um, so Ruth's second step is important. The first one, wash, but then anoint yourself. Put on some nice perfume, basically. Uh, the third step is to clothe yourself. And actually, the Hebrew word here is the word simla. And it's, it's a word that um, uh, kind of indicates that you have maybe one more thing that you could, you could wear that would, would dress you up a little bit. And, you know, it's possible that Ruth was, was still wearing her, her mourning clothes. And that may be one of the reasons that Boaz didn't just immediately approach her and cared for her so so carefully, but um, you know, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have a picture of David, and the scriptures say he completed his time of mourning, and he got up, bathed himself, and put on fresh clothes. And so I think that there is a, an appropriate period for, for mourning. Uh, God rebukes Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 before Samuel anoints David for mourning Saul's monarchy for too long. You know, how long are you going to keep mourning him? I've already rejected him. So I do think that there's an appropriate time to mourn, and then it's time to lay down our mourning clothes. We don't know how long this was, but Ruth may still have been wearing those garments of her widowhood. And so this is a reference to her changing her clothes. And, and if that was the reason that Boaz was standing back, maybe now he would take notice of her because she was no longer wearing those those widow clothes. Uh, Y'all remember um, uh, Gone with the Wind and Scarlet wearing black but dancing behind the counter. Um, um, yeah, Paul speaks of a garment that uh, he sees that God clothes us with when he clothes us with Christ's righteousness. Uh, as we are accepted in the beloved. That's in Ephesians 1.6. So all the time if she'd been wearing these clothes of her widowhood, mourning the loss of her husband, 
and uh, this is maybe why Boaz just didn't really approach her earlier. Um, but he had taken notice of her. You know, this also parallels a passage in Ezekiel 16 because that talks about a, a bride preparing herself for a wedding. And Naomi is the one taking her, telling her to take these steps. I don't know if she knows exactly how it's going to play out. And certainly in the timeline, they didn't at that time, but they knew what this was all about. And step four, so we, we wash ourselves, we anoint ourselves, we change our clothes. And then the last step is we stake our claim. Ruth was coming to her by the direction of Naomi to say, you are a kinsman of mine, and I want to present myself as a candidate for your wife. I want you to redeem us and redeem the land. And I just have a question for us. Um, you know, Jesus is our near kinsman. He's the one who became like us, you know, fully God, fully man. And he's our kinsman redeemer. He redeems us by his purchase of his shed blood. And he brings us, uh, when we respond to that, into uh, the bride of Christ. But it's an interesting thing. Boaz was very well aware of all this. Ruth had no clue. She had to be instructed by Naomi of each of these steps and also this whole concept. And Boaz, even if he did find her attractive and was attra and wanted to, to take this, this role, Ruth had to present herself first. And so I see in, in the picture of salvation that Jesus presents himself to us, but we have to, we have to respond to that. We have to call upon his name to be saved. And so I just want to ask you, have you staked your claim with, the, with our kinsman redeemer? Um, all right, back to the text. So um, Naomi gives her these four steps. I'm looking at the clock. I've got to talk fast. Uh, verse 4, Then it shall be when he lies down that you should notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. And then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say I will do. And uh, I guess just for, um, for uh, time's sake tonight, we're not going to talk about the threshing floor. We'll wait for that next week. We're going to talk about, um, about uh, this concept where... Uh, Ruth says, uh, put your cover over me or spread your skirt over me or, or uh, cover me. We're going to talk about that. I don't, I don't know how the version you're looking at actually reads, but uh, these are some of the ways that it reads. And um, I mentioned that a lot of people will look at this passage and, and they can't help but because of the culture that we're in see promiscuity and illicit sex in this. And I would just say, recognize that this was a public place and we need to get our minds out of the gutter and let it, let it be what it's saying and no more than that. And then we'll, I think we'll have a better understanding of what this is because after this, this all takes place, he says that everyone knows you as a noble woman. And so we're going to see how noble she is. So um, we're going to stop there for tonight. And now you understand we got five verses done. Now you know why I need six weeks to cover all this. Okay, hopefully you got, you, at least you're taking home the calendar, uh, the Jewish calendar. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I look forward to next week because I had some good stuff, but I just, I got off track on some things. Chasing rabbits. All right, any, any questions? Okay, are y'all falling in love with Ruth? Isn't this awesome? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. They were allowed to have the Moabites, you know, come into their land. They just were not allowed to marry them. And so um, this is why I, I think, you know, from a divine perspective, God was working behind the scenes. He was working his plan. And God sets laws, but the reason he gives laws is so that we can find out that we can't meet the standard of the law and, and run to a, a, a Savior. And, um, and God sometimes bends His laws and breaks His own laws. He's a promise-keeping God, but He sometimes breaks His laws. Well, 
Uh-oh. You poked a hole. You're, that, you're right, you're right. Uh, do you remember who it was? Okay. All right. She said that Boaz's mother was not a Jew. Yeah, in fact, maybe that could be one of your homework assignments. In the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, there are five women that are mentioned. You know the last one, Mary. But there are four others. We've talked about two of them today. And there's another one that you're getting ready to say, but don't just yet. Let everybody look it up. Let everybody look it up. You know, you know, so you get a star for tonight. Um, but um, but there's, there's, four, there's four other women, and all of them don't really fit the picture. And so we'll, we'll, we're going to get into that the last week as we go over that. But you can read it and, and get ahead. Maybe somebody will start shouting out other answers that they, that they know. All right, any questions? Any questions? All right, let me pray for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, thank you for being our kinsman redeemer. Thank you for taking on flesh and then living the perfect life. And Lord, taking the abuse that you took and voluntarily shedding your blood, which was not spilling your blood, it was pouring out your blood. You did it... uh, by your choice. And your death was not at all a tragedy. It was a triumph. A triumph over sin and death and a triumph of which we are trophies of your victory. And we, we bless your name and we worship you and you're fully worthy of all that we would give to you including our whole self and so we do that right now again. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for my sisters and my brothers. I thank you for the fun that we're having. I thank you for the, the richness of this, this text and all of your word. And Lord, just uh, keep us in awe and wonder and amazement of who you are. And, um, and then Lord, I look forward to coming back and filling in some more pieces of things that you've shared with me. Uh, bless each person. Keep us safe, Lord. Keep us spiritually safe and focused on you. And may you get glory from everything that takes place in our life and in our time together. Thank you for visiting us and answering the prayers that we prayed at the beginning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.